Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media. This is your host, the OG Rob Silver, and today we will be reviewing all the fights that happened Friday and Saturday evening. I will answer some more questions from my faithful listeners, and I will discuss my 31st greatest fighter of the last 45 years, one of the greatest counterpunches in the history of the sport, the Mexican icon Juan Manuel Marquez. Uh, before I go into the program and start with the weekend's uh, recap, I want to ask if any of you guys are interested in hearing any bonus content from me and the rest of my colleagues at the Fight Game Media. There is a Patreon podcast that I do on a weekly, uh, not on a weekly, but on a monthly basis. The link is in the description of the podcast. And it is called uh, My Greatest Upsets of All Time. Currently, we have listed uh, Roberto Duran's shocking upset to Esteban De Jesus in their first fight. Lloyd Hunnigan's shocking upset of Donald Curry. Villamar Fernandez's shocking upset of Alexis Arguello. The legendary Julio Cesar Chavez's shocking loss to Frankie Randall. Thomas Hearns' shocking knockout loss, which was the last episode I did, to Iran Barkley. And for the month of August, in a podcast that I will be recording in a couple of weeks, seven to ten days. Um, one of Marquez's contemporaries, Marco Antonio Barrero's shocking loss to Junior Jones. Also on the Patreon feed, you've got exclusive content on AEW, WWE, UFC, Bellator, you name it, combat sports, my colleagues cover it. Also, you can check out and hopefully subscribe to our YouTube page, Fight Game Media, on YouTube. Now, on to this week's fights. Friday night, we had on ESPN a very entertaining main event between Arnold Barboza and Danielito Zorilla, two undefeated junior welterweight contenders. And Barboza's who he is, and he's never going to be anything great. He's a solid fighter. Uh, he does nothing wrong, but he does nothing great. Uh, solid boxer, throws a decent jab, throws combinations, uh, solid defense. But he is what he is, and that is the type of fighter that you beat on your way to becoming a great fighter. He will never be a great fighter, first of all. His, he's lacking punching power. Yes, he throws nice combinations. He's very solid. That's the word, solid. He's not bad. He's not great. He's solid. And yeah, he'll one day possibly win a bogus 
a title from one of the criminal cartel sanctioning bodies, but he'll never be a top five fighter in, in any division. And he's in the 140-pound division, which is one of the most talent-laden divisions in all of boxing. And he beat a guy, uh, Danielito Zorilla, Zorilla, who is a tenacious son of a gun, but who's one-dimensional. He's a one-dimensional slugger. And Barbosa controlled the action for most of the first eight, nine rounds. And then in the 10th round, Zorilla, out of desperation, staggered uh, Barbosa with a nice right cross, had him in trouble, and Barbosa had to hold on to secure the, the victory. Deservingly so, he got the decision. But he has no shot against a Regis Prograde. He will never beat, even though I think he's overrated, he will never beat a Josh Taylor. He couldn't beat a Jack Catterall. He's not beating Jose Ramirez. He's not beating uh, Cepeda. He's not beating any of the top guys, 100, 140 pounds. No, and definitely not Orion Garcia or Teo Lopez. He's solid. He's the type of guy you beat on your way to become a champion. He's not the type of dude to be a champion, not a real champion. Interim champion, a bogus champion, yes. Solid win, but Friday night fight showed why he's not a serious, serious, serious contender to becoming a champion. Now, on to Saturday night's fights. And it was the return of Ryan Garcia. And before we get into Garcia's performance and what I think the future uh, lies for him, we'll talk about the undercard real quick. And in the undercard, you had uh, some horrible fights. And you had a yeah, yeah, yeah. you had one amazing fight, one amazing fight, and that was the flyweight title eliminator between David Jimenez. And Ricardo Sandoval. Now, Sandoval was the favorite. And I would say during the first six to eight rounds, uh, I had Sandoval slightly winning because he was boxing and he was uh, uh, doing more than Jimenez. But Jimenez began to land more, land more often. And then finally, in the 11th round, Jimenez landed a beautiful right cross in the middle of exchange that dropped and hurt Sandoval. The fight was held on the zone, and these fucking idiots, and I've said it over and over again, and I'm about to get into Chris Mannix's ass right now, but before we talk about Mannix, Sergio Mora and Todd Grisham erroneously called the shot that Jimenez knocked Sandoval down, a right hook. It was a right cross, you fucking idiots. When it's an orthodox fighter and he is throwing a straight right, it's a right cross, it's not a right hook. How many fucking times do I have to explain this to you fucking idiots? You guys do not know, and Sergio Moron should know better. He's a former pro boxer. He's a former criminal cartel bogus world champion. And yet, 
they continue to miseducate the public. Man, if I was growing up and I had clowns like this announcing instead of a Howard Cosell or a Gil Clancy or a Tim Ryan, I'd be all fucked up in my head. Man, get out of here. Chris Mannix, who uh, didn't call uh, that punch a, a right cross or a right hook, he, he just laid back in the cut, totally embarrassed himself last night because uh, doing the, the Lamont Roach fight, which I'll get into in a, in a second, Sergio Mora asked, he asked, Chris Manick, oh, you remember the Riddick Bow Andrew Galata fight? The fights, the two fights, the the foul fest, the brawl, the 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 riot at Madison Square Garden, and and uh, immediate rematch. Chris Mannix is forty two years old. That means that he was, and he was born, I believe, late in nineteen seventy nine. So he would have been sixteen years old. When Riddick Bowe versus Andrew Galata fought, matter of fact, a fight that I took my father to see at Madison Square Garden, the first fight, the fight that you had to riot, where you had a race riot between Polish immigrants and African-Americans, black people. Right? I was there. I had to hold my father back from getting involved in that riot. I held him back. And once everything uh, simmered down, which was 20 to 25 minutes later, we walked out of the garden unscathed. Manic said, no, I didn't see the fights. I, I uh, learned about them by watching Legendary Nights, the HBO documentaries. Later on, those documentaries were aired in the early 2000s. If I'm not mistaken, it would have been 2003. So that would have made him 23 years old when he started watching and being a real boxing fan because you're not a real boxing fan if you're not watching Riddick Bowe who's one of the most well-known fighters in the world in 1996 on a well-publicized fight that aired in prime time on HBO in a sold-out Madison Square Garden in one of the most controversial fights in the history of boxing. That means you weren't a boxing fan at the age of 16. What the fuck is the zone doing paying this guy great money to be a quote-unquote expert boxing analyst when he didn't start following the sport until after he graduated from college and after he became a sports writer now I'll give Mannix his due he's an excellent uh, sports writer when it comes to basketball and baseball he has proven time and time again alongside Grisham and Moron that he is one of the worst boxing analysts and boxing commentators in the history of of boxing he's pathetic and it is embarrassing for the zone to trot out these three idiots these three buffoons week in and week out and have them spread misinformation and complete complete unknowing of punches boxers careers historical uh, events that's embarrassing. It's on the same level as four or five years ago when Tim Bradley asked Mark Kriegel about Mark Two Sharp Johnson. And Kriegel, instead of telling Bradley, oh, I never saw him fight, sheepishly smiled and was silent. If you're getting paid big money 
to be a color commentator and you don't know who the hell Mark Two Sharp Johnson is, you didn't see the Bo Galata fights when you were 16 years old, you have no business getting paid in front of a national audience, national television audience, to pontificate about boxing, to give your so-called expert commentary. It is akin to Major League Baseball, National Basketball Association, and National Football League hiring an, an announcer who didn't start watching the sport until it's into his 20s. That doesn't happen. Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL does not do that nonsense. They don't. They don't spit in the face of their fan base, of their listeners, of their viewers, by putting a guy who's never watched baseball or who just started watching baseball in his 20s, basketball in his 20s, football in his 20s, and put him in front of a mic. No, no. I watch all the sports except for the NHL. All right, I watch the NBA, MLB, and I watch the NFL, MLB, and the NBA. I'm a sports historian minus hockey and other, and, and of course, international football. And the same goes for them, I'm sure, because that's the world's most viewed sport. You're not going to have a guy who didn't grow up watching the sport announce the sport. You're spitting in the faces of your fan base. Now, Jimenez, back to the fight, won a very deserving decision. A very deserving majority decision because he out-hustled Sandoval, dropped him, batted him in the 12th round and in an entertaining 12th round to get the victory. Kudos to Jimenez. I want to see more of Jimenez. Now, he's not a great fighter. He's a flawed fighter. David Jimenez has punching power in both hands, and he's going to be a tall order for anybody in the flyweight division, and I and I love to see it. I'm, I'm here to see him in his next fight, and I wouldn't mind a rematch with him and Sandoval because this first fight was the best fight of the weekend. Second fight shouldn't be any different. Lamont Roach was in the next fight. Lamont Roach, who, in my opinion, has underperformed in his career. He showed so much promise in the amateurs and coming up early in this fight, early in his career. Then, then he ran into Jamal, Jamel Herring. And, oh, another thing, the zone. And I'm glad Jamel, shout out to Jamel Herring, who is a, who is a, who, as a color commentator, is better than all three of those clowns put together at the zone. Lamont Roach, now a full-time ESPN color commentator. He is going to be one of the best to ever do it. The man knows the sport. Lamont Roach, I'll get to what, why I brought up Jamel Herring in a moment. Jamal, uh, Lamont Roach, after, a fir- after the first three, four rounds in which he looked lackluster and he let Andrew Rodriguez uh, dictate the fight by boxing from the outside, Lamont Roach started, started attacking, was hurting Rodriguez several times and was landing some heavy body shots. Shout out to uh, one of my followers on Twitter, Julia Streeter. More on Streeter later because he has a question that he sent in during a question and answer session. But kudos to Streeter because he called it. 
He said if Roach attacks and bullies Rodriguez, he could knock him out. The minute he began bullying and attacking Rodriguez, he hurt him several times. He landed some wicked body shots middle of the fight and won an easy 12-round decision. And what did these idiots, Grisham, Mannix, and Morris say? They said that Roach barely lost to Jamel Herring. Jamel Herring totally dominated Lamont, uh, Lamont Roach. So I don't know what they were looking at. These dudes try and fit their own narrative, and I'm tired of seeing it. I'm tired of seeing it. The zone is best watched listening to Mariah Carey or Sade or Slow Jams with the volume off, all right? You'll get better commentary listening to Mariah Carey sing Hero or Sade sing Smooth Operator while watching the fight on mute while watching the zone. Now the main event, Ryan Garcia versus Javier Fortuna. Ryan Garcia looked solid. He looked, no, he looked better solid. He looked very good. He looked good. And Fortuna was the perfect opponent for him. But it's time to stop fighting the Javier Fortunas of the world. Fortuna's done. He's past his prime. Even in his prime, he wouldn't have been a threat to Ryan Garcia because he doesn't have the punching power to deal with Garcia. He doesn't have the defense to deal with Garcia. Garcia utilized the sharp jab and a left hook that dropped Fortuna in the fourth round, fifth round, and finally knocked him out in the sixth round. Garcia looked impressive, but that's why they had him fight Fortuna. That's why Oscar put him in with Fortuna, because Fortuna was going to make him look great. Now, Oscar De La Hoya, Ryan Garcia, Joe Goosen. It's time to take the training wheels off of Ryan Garcia. I don't want to hear no, oh, I'm mentally ill, I got to take time off this. I don't want to hear none of that bullshit. It's time to foot put him in the ring with somebody and they were talking about Tank or Tio Lopez after the fight. Ryan Garcia does more talking than he does fighting. He talk just uh just a year and a half ago, he claimed that he would knock out Tank Davis within two rounds if they fought, and then he went on a sabbat- on a mental health sabbatical, and he claimed that he, he had to deal with mental health issues, right? So he said he was pulling out and not fighting because he has to deal with his mental health. The following day, there was pictures on Instagram that happened of him hanging out with a bunch of women in bikinis. Huh? Well, whatever helps you with your mental health, you fucking idiot. Anyway, Ryan... It's time for you to fight the Tank Davises. Tilo. Oh, by the way, Ryan is no longer lightweight. He's moved up to junior welterweight. I guess he realizes that he can't beat the Devin Haney's, the, the Facility Lomachenko's of the world. Instead, he goes up to 140, and now, uh, oh, okay, I'll fight Taylor Lopez or, or Tank Davis. Enough talk. Until a contract is signed, Shut the fuck up, Ryan Garcia. And now, on to the question and answer session of the program. Hold on one second. Um, let me get 
Let me get the questions on Twitter. And on Twitter, you can ask me questions that I will answer on the program at the hashtag AskRobSilver. Okay. Now, question from Julius Streeter. By the way, uh, follow Julius on YouTube. He's got a YouTube page. The young man is highly, highly, highly intelligent when it comes to the sport of boxing. Great dude. And the, his knowledge for a young man is way beyond his years. And it's only going to get better. And he's not the type to call you stupid, right, on social media. You know what you're talking about. I had to deal with a clown last night that I had to shut the fuck down. All right. Talking about Mike Tyson was beginning to go downhill after Custom Motto died in 1985. How fucking stupid do you sound? You stupid asshole. After Custom Motto died in November of 1985, Mike Tyson, alongside Kevin Rooney, from 1986 to 1988, went on one of the greatest three-year runs in the history of the heavyweight division. And you can make a, a, a... claim in the history of boxing period how's that going downhill after a while this idiot kept coming up with stuff and I found out that the dude wasn't even old enough to watch the fights I attended four of Mike Tyson's fights when I was 17 and 18 years old in 1985 and 86 in Madison Square Garden with my father Right, I saw Mike before and after cuss All right, Mike Tyson did not start going downhill until he fired Kevin Rooney after knocking out Michael Spinks in June of 1988. Then he became a one-dimensional slugger. So don't come at me when you weren't even around. I mean, yeah, you were around. You were sucking on your mama's titties, all right? The dude is barely 40 years old. That means that he would have been three years old when Custom Model died and four years old when Mike Tyson first became heavyweight champion of the world, and six years old when Tyson fired Kevin Rooney. Tell him, yo, don't look at the results. Look, look, look at what, motherfucker, I was there. How you uh, young, youngins say today, I was outside. I was inside the building, Madison Square Garden. Don't come at me, because I will embarrass you like I did, and then I will block you, because I got no time to hear you him, him humming and hammering and a whole bunch of dudes got at him last night and nobody other than this idiot debated on whether or not I was right because I was a thousand percent correct. Like Omar said on the wire, you best not come at the king. And I am the fucking king. Now, on to Julius this question Julius asked for me to rate my top five African fighters and the top five African fighters in my opinion at the top of the list and I'm doing this off the top of my head all right you gotta have Dick Tiger on that list you gotta have Ike Quarte on that list so they would be five and four at the top of the list would be Azuma Nelson would be my number one. Brian Mitchell would be my number two. And damn, I'm trying to think who would be a, you know, who could have been the greatest of all time. Unfortunately, he liked raping women. Ike Ibe, Ike Abiyabuchi 
would have been an all-time great African fighter. You could have made an argument that he could have been the greatest African-American fighter. And just on that alone, I'll put him at five, Tiger at four, Quarte at three, Brian Mitchell at two, and Azuma Nelson, number one. And for those that want to hear more about Azuma Nelson, listen to last week's episode when I did my historical retrospective on the great Professor Azuma Nelson. And now one more final, oh, two questions uh, from longtime listener of mine from several different platforms. My fellow Boricua, Rafael Toro. And Rafael asks, is, is Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez top 10 Latin fighter ever? Rafael, he's top five. He's top five. Who do you put above Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez when it comes to Latin fighters? And when we talk Latin fighters, we're talking Panamanian, Mexican, Nicaraguan. You could definitely say Roberto Duran, uh, Canelo, Salvador Sanchez. Well, you know what? Is he top? Yeah. I, I, uh, do I put Chocolatito above Gomez and Trinidad? No. Uh, and I'm not putting him up against Alexa Guell, your second question. Chocolatito's top 10. Top five, eh, no. No, I, I'm going back to my original answer. No, because I'm going to have to put Duran, Canelo, and an argument could be made for Canelo and, and Roman Gonzalez. You can go back and forth on that. No matter of fact, I'm going to put him over Canelo. I apologize. I'm going to put Chocolatito over Canelo. So who do I have above Chocolatito? Duran, Arguello are my two greatest Latin fighters of all time. Trinidad and Gomez are my two greatest Puerto Rican fighters of all time. And Salvador Sanchez is my greatest Mexican fighter of all time. So Chocolatito's on the tip of the outside looking in so no he's not top five he's definitely top 10 and your other question is has he overtaken Alexis Aguayo as the greatest Nicaraguan fighter of all time no he hasn't no he hasn't if you look at the level of opposition both men have faced in their career Alexis and Alexis Aguayo was the father of Nicaraguan boxing he was a mentor to Chocolatito and if you ask Chocolatito he's going to say Aguayo was a greater fighter than him no Alexis Arguello gave Aaron Pryor hell when Aaron Pryor was maybe the best fighter on the planet and the most feared and ducked fighter on the planet in 1982, rocked Pryor several times. And until Pryor blasted him out in the 14th round, they engaged in the greatest fight in the history of the junior welterweight 140-pound division. Alexis Arguello outboxed a technician in Jim Watt in Jim Watt's, Jim Watt's UK uh, backyard in 1981 to become lightweight champion of the world. He put on a masterful display of boxing and knocking out Ruben Olivares to win his first world title, the WBC featherweight championship, and had one of the greatest reigns in 130-pound history by beating all the good 130-pound fighters of his era when he was the WBC super featherweight champion from 1978 to 1980. During that reign, which he either successfully defended nine or 10 times, he beat a who's who of 130 pound fighters in that era. 
Alfredo Scalera twice. Bazooka Lamon. Rolando Navaretti. Cornelius Boza Edwards. And Bobby Chacon. Uh, now, Chocolatito has had a great run. One of the greatest fighters of the last 45 years. You will be hearing me talk about him on this program in the uh, upcoming weeks. Chocolatito's a close second. Arguello's number one. History in Nicaragua in boxing. And they're, on, they're, at, they're at the top. Everybody else is batting, battling for third when it comes to Nicaragua. Now, ladies and gentlemen, on to the final segment of the podcast, my historical retrospective. And this, this, this week, my number 31 greatest fighter of the last 45 years, the legendary Juan Manuel Marquez. I wrote this article on the FightGameMedia.com website which I'm up to number 13, um, my 45 greatest fighters the last 45 years. While I'm talking about number 31 today, you can go on the website and see my articles up to number 13. Now, on to Marquez, Juan Manuel Marquez. And I start the article by saying, he's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. Those were the words of Roy Jones with, a, with an iconic call on the December 8th, 2012 HBO pay-per-view telecast of Juan Manuel Marquez's incredulous knockout of his biggest nemesis, Manny Pacquiao. The historic knockout was the exclamation mark that cemented his standing as the 31st greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Don't worry, I'm inside my apartment. I'm not outside in the street. Marquez's career got off to an auspicious start when he lost his first pro fight at the age of 19 in 1993. The Mexico City native, under the tutelage of one of the greatest boxing trainers of all time and the greatest Mexican boxing trainer of all time, Nacho Beristein, rebounded to win his next 29 fights. This winning streak earned him the number one WBA ranking at 126 pounds and a shot at their champion, Freddie Norwood. On September 11, 1999, Marquez completely dominated Norwood over the entire 12 rounds, only to get fleeced by the judges. My father and I, who were both huge fans of Norwood, were a complete shock after the decision was rendered. That night, my father predicted that Marquez would eventually become one of the greatest Mexican fighters of all time. Unfortunately, my father passed away 11 months later. He didn't live to see just how prophetic his prediction would become. Marquez would win his next 10 fights before securing his next featherweight world title fight. On February 1st, 2003, the now 29-year-old Marquez battered, battered multi-time 126-pound multi fellow Mexican Manuel Medina in seven rounds to win the IBF version of the title. Exact, exactly nine months later, Marquez would add the WBO version to his ledger when he defeated Derek Gaynor via seventh-round technical decision. In his next fight, he would defend that title against the hottest fighter in the sport at the time, Manny Pacquiao. On the evening of May 8, 2004, Marquez stepped in the, into the ring to defend his title against the Filipino whirlwind. Pacquiao was expected to continue on his merc mercurial rise since coming to America a few years before. The first round was exactly what people expected. Manny came out like a house of fire, knocking Marquez down three times before somehow the champion survived the opening stanza. 
over the next few rounds, Marquez cleared his head and began to counter the aggressive Pacquiao with pinpoint right cross counters. The fight ended in a draw, which showed just how great Marquez was in recovering from a seemingly insurmountable first round to capture a draw. That night, Marquez proved to the boxing world that he was a great fighter in his own right. After two more successful defenses of his featherweight titles, Marquez went to Indo- into Indonesia on March 4, 2006 to fight their countryman, Chris John. Marquez was thoroughly outboxed by the crafty Indonesian over 12 rounds in losing his WBA title. Marquez had abdicated the IBF title prior to the fight. The fight with John illustrated the type of fighter Marquez had extremely difficulty with, had extreme difficulty with. A slick defensive fighter with great hand and foot speed. A year later, Marquez moved up to 130 pounds to challenge the WBC champion and fellow Mexican great Marco Antonio Barrera on March 17, 2007. In a tremendous action chess match, Marquez won a hard-fought 12-round decision to become a two-division world champion. This reign, however, would be short-lived. Four years after their incredible first fight, Marquez and Pacquiao would square off in a rematch on March 15, 2008 for Marquez's 130-pound crown. In another tremendous fight, it was Pacquiao knocking down Marquez in the third round that was the deciding factor in Pacquiao winning a split decision. That extra point for the knockdown kept the result from becoming another draw. Marquez, upset that he lost such a razor-thin decision, couldn't get an immediate rematch as Pacquiao decided to fight Oscar De La Hoya for the biggest payday of his career. With the Pacquiao immediate third fight a no-go, Marquez moved up to 135 pounds and challenged the ring lightweight champion, Joel Casamayor. On September 13, 2008, Marquez engaged in another tremendous action-packed chess match. The Southpaw Cuban Casamayor was the typical Cuban technician. The first six rounds of the fight saw Marquez befuddled by Casamayor's technical gifts as a boxer. The second half of the fight saw Marquez, one of the greatest counterpunches in boxing history, landing at will with his pristine counter-right crosses. It was a counter-right cross that finally knocked Casamayor down in the 11th round. Casamayor got up on wobbly legs and was knocked down again. When the Cuban great got up on an even more unsteady legs, referee Tony Weeks stopped the fight. Marquez was now a three-division champion. Marquez followed up his title win against Casmayor by defending his title on February 28, 2009 against the rugged Juan Diaz in Diaz's hometown of Houston, Texas. Throughout the first six rounds, Diaz jumped on Marquez and batted him with a fuselage of combinations to the body and head. I was shocked to see Marquez able to adjust and in the 11th round, he had enough to begin battering Diaz with his famed counter-right crosses. In the ninth round, Marquez dropped Diaz with a sizzling right cross. The game Diaz got up a second later, Marquez landed a wicked right uppercut that put Diaz to sleep. Referee Rafael Ramos immediately stopped the fight, and once again, Marquez had escaped an absolute war. Unable to once again get a third fight with Pacquiao, Marquez instead got his biggest payday of his career, moving up to 147 in his next fight versus Floyd Mayweather.
As great as Marquez was, there was never a scenario in which he could have defeated Mayweather. Mayweather was all wrong for Marquez. Although Floyd at five foot eight was only an inch taller than the Mexican legend, physically he was much bigger, stronger, and faster. On September 19, 2009, Mayweather put, an absolute, put on an absolute boxing clinic against Marquez, winning every minute of every round and gaining a lopsided 12-round unanimous decision. Marquez immediately went back to one, back down to 135 and successfully defended his title twice, including a rematch against Diaz. Marquez would finally receive the much sought-after third fight against Pacquiao. It would be for Pacquiao's WBO 147-pound title and a chance not only to win a fourth world title, but finally gain an official victory against his biggest rival. On November 12, 2011, Marquez put on what I believe was the greatest performance of his career. Unfortunately, once again, the Filipino great Pacquiao won, this time via majority decision. Both men decided right away that they needed to fight a fourth time in order to decide once and for all who the superior fighter was. Before Marquez and Pacquiao would fight a fourth time, they both took an interim fight in between. On March 14, 2012, Marquez defeated Sergei Fedchenko to win his coveted fourth world title, the WBO 140-pound crown. Two months later, Pacquiao would lose his WBO 147-pound title in one of the worst decisions in boxing history to Timothy Bradley. Despite the highway robbery loss, the fourth fight would still be held on December 8th, 2012. It would be the most memorable fight of the four-fight uh, series. As great as the first three fights were, the fourth and final fight between the two legends was easily the best of the series. Marquez gave Manny hell because of his innate ability to counter Manny's relentless southpaw style with, with his accurate and punishing right cross. Finally, Marquez knocked Manny down for the first time in their four fights with a crisp right cross in the third round. Manny was able to get up and survive the round. The fifth round was the most scintillating round of the series. Pacquiao landed his signature left cross early in the round to score a flash knockdown. Marquez came roaring back and slugged it out with the Filipino legend for the rest of the round. Then came the iconic moment in the fight. Round six, Manny dominated for the entire round until right before the end of the round, he walked into one of the greatest right crosses in the history of boxing. Marquez's right was so accurate and potent that Manny was unconscious the second he was hit and fell face first to the canvas. Referee Kenny, Kenny Bayless immediately stopped the fight as Pacquiao laid unconscious for several minutes. It was one of the most momentous knockouts in boxing history because of the rare occurrence of a legendary fighter like Manny getting put to sleep in that fashion. Marquez would lose his next fight to Timothy Bradley for Bradley's WBO 147-pound title on October 12, 2013. Marquez was now 40 years old, and the years of being in so many wars showed him losing very convincingly to Bradley over 12 rounds. After struggling to defeat Mike Alvarado the following May, Marquez disappeared from the sport before announce finally announcing his retirement in 2017, three years after his final fight. Marquez will retire with a record of 56 wins, 7 losses, and 1 draw with 40 knockouts. Marquez, throughout his illustrious career, never once ducked anyone and fought any and everyone, not to mention 
his incredible four-fight series and one-punch knockout of Manny Pacquiao. All the reason why he's the 31st greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, until next week, thanks for listening and be blessed and be a blessing.